Hey everyone, it's Elle. Before we start this week's episode, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description. This is our very first season of The Walk-In and we'd love to get feedback from you on what you're liking, what we could do better, and all that good stuff. It only takes a few minutes, so tell us what you think. And if you do, you'll get a 20% off coupon to the America's Test Kitchen online store. It's good for any cookbook, magazine, or digital download. So help us out and get 20% off. Now, on to the show. Making it in the food world takes a lot of things. Hard work, determination, vision, grit. It can also take money. What if a bank didn't care about how your wallet stacked up? What if the level of service your bank provided wasn't based on, say, the cash you have or your credit history? What if the only thing that mattered to your bank was you? At Berkshire Bank, all wallets are welcome. Even you duct tape wallets. Berkshire Bank, member FDIC. Every restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry, to confide in a friend, or to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to appear in control falls away, where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. From America's Test Kitchen, I am El Simone Scott, and this is The Walk-In. What's up, Alex Hunter? Can't wait to get into the walk-in today, talk to you about everything that's going on with Black Palette. I can't believe we haven't seen each other since we were at that barbecue you were throwing down. I don't know what you got cooking up today, but I'm excited to connect. I'm excited to feel your vibes, and I'm excited to get to know everything that's been going on with you and tell you what's been going on with me. So let's get into it. Hunter Zuli is stepping into the walk-in with me today. It's hard to describe what Hunter does because she does it all. He is an educator, a culinary artist, an event producer, an inclusion thought leader, an entrepreneur, a brand strategist. The list goes on and on. Hunter founded Black Palette, a creative agency and consultancy that produces radical experiences and content. The basis for Black Palette's work outside of the clients is curating experiences that invoke radical conversations, often over a meal or a drink. So like dinner with a side of revolution. She's also the owner and operator of Witchy, a mobile sandwich shop inspired by street food from around the world. But you don't carve this unique of a path in the food world without a few twists and turns along the way. It's time to step into the walk-in. Before we get started, just a quick note. This conversation hits on serious topics such as eating disorders, which might be triggering for some listeners. Also, this conversation took place remotely, so please forgive some of the audio quality throughout. Hunter, I'm so glad you could join me on the walk-in today. We met not too long ago, right? Um, maybe. Gosh, I've absolutely no concept of time since COVID. But as fate would have it, we met at a dinner table. 
we were sharing fries and finding out that we both um, had a connection to Boston and um, we were with an amazing group of queer artists and performers after a really great show. It was quite serendipitous. I sat in front of you and we hit it off immediately. And I knew from that moment that, and I think I said to you, we are going to do something, some work, some magic. I don't know, but I knew immediately upon meeting you that you were a very special person, and I'm excited to hear your story today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I do remember us connecting, and I was so grateful to just happen to land at the table that you're sitting at because you were so giving and with your energy, and it was really amazing to meet somebody in food who off the bat was clearly invested in bring people up with her. I was excited to connect further and then come to the walk-in together. That's right. That's right. The walk-in is where the magic happens. Let's move into uh, a little bit more talk about the fabulousness that is you and why uh, I want you to come into the walk-in. Thank you. Hunter, I'm always so intrigued about Black Palette. That was one of the things that we talked about when we first met. And I was really, really interested in, you know, I love supper club experiences, but I've never experienced one the way that you do Black Palette. Black Palette was founded in 2017, and it initially began as an event production company that was focused on curating food, beverage, and hospitality experiences centered on the African diaspora. And it eventually evolved into a creative agency and a consultancy where now we curate those very same events and content around those topics. One of our events that folks know us most for is FED. FED is a sex ed supper club. It's a radical space where folks get to come, eat, engage, and elevate, and learn from sex educators. Our profit model is a radical profit model. We make sure that the folks that we hire as educators are folks who are formally sex educators, and we also have folks who also work in the sex work space. We believe that it's important to honor all folks in the hospitality industry, and we do believe that sex workers are hospitality workers, and they're often the most marginalized hospitality workers. So you can come to a Fed experience and eat a full multi-course dinner, but you're going to be doing that while you're engaging in activation stations. There might be live performances. There will be critical conversation with guest speakers that we have around topics like one of our topics in January was the worth of Black women in entertainment and sex work. We talked about not just the theoretical worth of them, like how society sees those folks. But we also talked about the actual financial navigation of doing that kind of work and being self-empowered in that work. And it's not only a space for folks who identify as sex workers to come and engage, but we have folks from 21 to 65 that come to our events. And those are all folks who just are looking for a space to have conversations that they've been told they can't have at the dinner table. And when Black Palette curates 
our own events, that's the through line for our events. We do lots of things with our clients that intersect different uh, topics and industries. But when we do our own events, it's really about asking ourselves, what are the conversations that people have told us we're not allowed to have at the dinner table? And how do we make sure that we find a way to have those conversations? Now, I want to nerd out a little bit about some food. Let's talk about witchy. You were doing some sandwich testing. They looked amazing. They were also not really the kind of sandwich combinations I would have thought <laughs> to put together. So, like, let's talk about witchy. What inspires you? What is those flavor profiles that you were working with? Where do those come from? Tell me about your inspiration with food. Yeah, so Witchy is the sandwich shop that I own, and it is a multicultural sandwich shop. Um, we're kind of pivoting a little bit to be more of a new age deli slash apothecary. That's kind of the direction we're going into. But the sandwich vibe inspirations are multiculturalism. I am an American born Black child with two Black parents from two different countries and I don't know what it's like to eat one kind of food because even my mother cooking American food, still she would include Haitian flavors or spices or you add pickles in the ramen. When I was in college and I started to have just like things straight out of the package that my roommates would have or just certain things that I thought I knew where they were, I would taste them and I'm like, what? I'm like, oh, this doesn't taste like how my mom made that. Right. And so, you know, which just comes from the recognition that the American sandwich experience is definitely not the only sandwich experience and the kind of new age vibe and the apothecary vibes come through my intention to just to use plant medicine and herbalism as some of my ingredients. So a barbecue sauce won't just be a barbecue sauce. It would be like a kombucha barbecue sauce. Yes. Kombucha barbecue sauce. I love that. Yeah. In our drink lines, our sips, you know, we'll make sure to infuse herbalism in simple things like ice cubes. So yeah. we might have like calendula and lavender ice cubes. Mm. Yeah. I mean, my direction with Witchy is to essentially have a seasonal summer sandwich shop. I'm a summer baby. <laughs> Word up. Definitely. You're a food person, so you know what FIFO stands for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. First in, first out. I want to talk about old you. I just want to know all the things that led up to you. You know, tell me more about Sea Hunter Zulu. FIFO. First in, first out. I'm originally from Boston, Massachusetts. That's where I was born. My mom is from Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and my father is from Africa. He's from the Congo. Both of them had particular lives there that led them to Boston, where they met each other. My father, although he was born in the Congo and is Congolese, he spent the majority of his life in boarding school in Europe and eventually ended up continuing the private education experience in Boston. And he went to Harvard and he was at a working at a shoe store and my mother walked in and she wanted to buy some shoes. And <laughs> whatever happened next ended up resulting eventually in me coming into the world. I was born 
a few years into them being together, my mother was raising me as a single mother, primarily with her sister and her younger brother. And my family's history in those respective countries of Haiti and the Congo are definitely existences where they come from privilege in those countries. My family came to the United States, landed in Brooklyn in 1986, and really uprooted in Crown Heights, Canarsie, Midwood area, and eventually went to Boston, Canada, and so forth. And so my parents were really young metropolitan immigrants who had a very different experience than maybe some of my friends who were Haitian growing up in Boston, whose parents were maybe of an older generation. My mom got pregnant with me when she was 20, had me at 21. And so my life in Boston was really growing up with her as an only child, as a child who was Black and American. And, you know, with my mom, who really had a lot of American sensibilities, but also was definitely Haitian. And was also somebody who was into fashion and, you know, into herbalism and holistic care. And it's interesting, a lot of the things that are trending now in the world, my mother very much was into a lot of that. And um, I ended up having to be independent because she was working a lot. And food really entered my life in that way because of my need to be independent. Let's talk about that. I'm an only child also. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I definitely was a latchkey kid. And coming home from school, like there were either firm instructions about how to feed yourself or less firm instructions and you were that carte blanche to just be as creative as you wanted to be. I grew up with standard American foods like omelets and bologna sandwiches. I cannot imagine the complex flavor profiles of some delicious Haitian food at like 12. I definitely was mimicking a lot of things that I had hoped that I could have in the moment that I had eaten when we went out and I wasn't mimicking Haitian food. It's interesting because you grow up with immigrant parents and in some sense, I grew up primarily with the Haitian side of my family. And Mm -hmm. so I had a lot more of that food culture as part of like my everyday culinary experience. And because I had been sent away to live with my family in Haiti when I was two years old, so my mom could finish going to school and I came back to the United States in kindergarten, I had a really thick accent and eventually that ended up fading But what that resulted in is just me resisting wanting to speak Haitian Creole Mm. because of, I'm pretty sure because of classmates and just kind of the trauma that comes with not wanting to be different, especially in Boston, where I was growing up primarily in white working class neighborhoods or going to schools with middle and upper middle class white kids. And so I resisted Haitian food unless it was from specific people in my family. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I was in the house making food, where again, I got a specific instruction, just like you, yeah. you know, I got a note that said either this is money and it's either money to go pick up something just for a meal or it's money to go get groceries. When I did get groceries, I was pretty nostalgic about the dining out experiences that I had had with my mom, with my friends, with my family, because even when my mom wasn't working, she also was kind of tired and she didn't always want to cook. And so we did dine out a lot. And my father didn't grow up in the house with me, but he did up until I was like around 12, 
he did pick me up regularly. And so dining out was a really huge experience for us. And he definitely opened my eyes, not into just Congolese flavors, but other flavors of the African diaspora. He took me to my first Ethiopian Eritrean restaurant, Asmara in Central Square when I was like seven years old. And those flavor palettes were pretty dynamic because of us getting to eat out a lot and also because of me tapping into my own cultural culinary experiences. But I also think it was a byproduct of being in the Boston metro area. Mm -hmm. My mom and my dad and just my family, they're into food. And so I think it was really a blessing to be in a metropolitan city, even though it's definitely grown a lot in terms of the culinary scene since I grew up there, but it was still there. I never didn't know what other cultures and what other people were like. And therefore, I always connected food to other people's cultures, for sure. That's very interesting. I think I found growing up in Detroit, I had a very similar experience in that, more with art. Because when I was young, my mother would take me to like the, the Detroit Institute of Art monthly. We have a science center that we would go to weekly. And that was I felt like that was almost her way of taking me around the world, even when she couldn't physically take me around the world. And it sounds like that was the experience that you were having with food. Now I want to know how those experiences would come to craft what you do in New York. You know, like it sounds very much like you are very much into food experiential moments. And it sounds like you had a lot of those that probably, without you even knowing it, pulling you, your destiny, your future, your passion into that direction, you know, going out to eat, having food festivals, having, I'm sure, lots of open dialogues about food and culture and how food affects culture. And it sounds a lot like what you do now. So tell me about Black Palette and how those things kind of brought it on home for you. Yeah, absolutely. So at the end of 2017, I founded what was then just an event production company rooted in food and hospitality and the African diaspora called Black Palette, but it's now a cultural and creative agency. I founded that out of a want and a need to have food and hospitality spaces that integrated dynamic conversations and that allowed people to talk about things that we haven't been able to talk about at the dinner table or have been told we haven't or shouldn't be talking about at the dinner table you know, for that very reason. And I think it came out of certainly my background, not only just in terms of how I would merge food and hospitality as a social entrepreneur with conversations around social justice, race, class, gender, sexuality, and more. But I would definitely say that my own lived experiences of growing up in a Haitian household where I did grow up with a young parent and her young siblings who are having dinner parties all the time. That definitely informed it as well. And so when I came to New York City, straight out of high school and I went to college, New York is your campus. I went really hard in terms of my social life. And I think it's interesting because you start that at 18. And then by the time you're like 22, you're kind of burnt out and you start to want something different in terms of social life. Right. Before you go too far, I want to know, I'm so intrigued about these dinner parties that your 
mom and her sibs would have, right? What was your role at these dinner parties? Because I know I was always the kid with the adults, right? I knew if you just sat quietly, you could be in all the adult conversations and get all the food <laughs> and know everything that's going on. I would clean plates. I would sing a little dream girls. I would do all kinds of things just to stay around. What was your thing? I would say probably the age of like 10 and under my role and my older cousin, we were there to entertain. We were really there to look cute. So they were really about making us look really (laughs) cute. Like they would spend a lot of time dressing us up and doing our hair. And then eventually in the night where you would see the adults start to be like feeling it. They would put the music on and they would be dancing and I'd be in my room with other kids playing video games or be running around or sneaking alcoholic desserts that I wasn't supposed to have. I already know. Yeah. (laughs) So like Haitian rum balls, these like chocolate rum balls that are (laughs) soaked, Uh, like sneaking that or like Haitian rum cake or stuff like that. And then eventually they would call you out. They would call us out and they would ask us to start dancing and (laughs) we would just dance. And uh, yeah, they were entertained by that. Honestly, that was really our role. That sounds just about right. I love it. That means across the diasporic variety of people, they're all making the kids entertain the party. (laughs) All right. So you're in New York now. Let's fast forward from your dinner parties from college to when you, I guess I want to say maybe started to like monetize it. Let me know about your professional life. Who were you right after you graduated from college? Tell me about that. You know, I was having and hosting dinner parties and other social events in my apartments while I was in college. I went to the new school for a double concentration in urban education studies and nonfiction writing and journalism. And while I was there, I spent a lot of time beginning a career. I was working with first graders to high schoolers all around the city, all through college. And I was 21 years old. My students were 17 to 22 years old, and they had been either pushed out or incarcerated. um, And they were coming back to high school so that they could get their diploma before they could age out. And so I did that work for quite some time. And all of that work didn't detach from my event and organizing background. And so, you know, in Boston, I was a social justice baby from my family to the things that I was involved in. I had always been in community organizing and social justice activism spaces that were oriented around community events. And so from a very young age, I understood like, okay, you bring people together and you often like share, you get people to like want to absorb information by like curating events. And so even as a teacher and a counselor, at Bushwick, I started curating events. And so I attached to leadership positions outside of being a teacher and started co-leading the Gay-Straight Alliance. And so through that, I would host events for the students there. We threw their first gay ball. We would throw uh, national homophobia and transphobia awareness days. We would work with uh, hip hop groups in Palestine and talk about police brutality that's connected in Palestine to Brooklyn. And so, you know, events were always part of it, but then my students were always coming to school hungry. And so immediately it was 
important for me to go back into my education and remember that my urban education was really rooted in cultural relevancy. And so part of that was understanding that, you know, you really can't get upset as students not being able to focus about anything if they come to school hungry, mm-hmm. right? And so first it started with feeding students at events or feeding students in my class. Then it kind of turned into like, okay, if we're going to be feeding students, let's like activate the food justice component into it because our school was a social justice based school. And so, you know, it just kind of evolved. I feel like this is such a framework of who you are that like it's natural, like as a cook is saying, add the sugar, add the salt, add the pepper, add the oil. That it seems like that is your recipe for social justice. It's like you just build from one idea off of the next. Mm -hmm. And I think that that it's a very common process for those of us who grew up with like social justice homes. I can't remember when I wasn't doing community work. Let me just say that. Is that how you approached starting Black Palette? Like you already had those building blocks on the entire mission. Like every single component has a mission. Absolutely. I'm a firm believer in slow and steady wins the race. Mm -hmm. And as early as me graduating from college and my first job working at Bushwick as a teacher and a counselor, I had always known that I was an entrepreneur. And a lot of my community organizing work and my ability to organize things outside of my full-time job. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, you spend time knowing like you want to create something and you're wondering what exactly that is. And so by the time that I left Bushwick and by the time I my career evolved, I had gone into professions outside of just straight being a teacher or counselor and went into leadership positions that were around strategic organizing, management, operations, and things like that, and leadership in nonprofit, leadership in corporate and social responsibilities so that I recognized that my mind was always working in that way. And then I sought to go up into my career through positions that allowed me to do that every single day. And eventually it evolved into me helping other companies, helping other corporate social responsibility nonprofits or for-profits be better and be great. And when a lot of my work revolved around helping people fulfill their potential as a social entrepreneur who knew that they wanted to do something and you know, was kind of putting the pieces together, eventually I had to bite and say, you know, it's time for you to fulfill your own potential. And I had moved into a position where I was able to travel about 30 to 50% of the time for my position. And when I wasn't, I was working from home. And so that's really when I started Black Palette, when I knew that I actually had the space in my life to actually start a company because I wasn't trying to like start a side hustle, which is cool, but I was really trying to start a business. I was trying to involve people, build a team. And I knew that the first two years I wanted to really see what people were responding to, but I knew that I would have to put myself out there while I was building something. And I knew that I would have to have time and space for it. The Volrack Company has been making industrial cooking gear for 145 years, and they brought that long history to the table when they decided to launch Nuku, their line of cookware and bakeware for home chefs. Here's Jean Horvath, the Vice President of Custom and Specialty Products. With Nuku, it really gives them the confidence to explore their passion and focus on the joy that drives them to the kitchen. What we like to say is Nuku stands out by not standing in the way. 
Don't let subpar cookware stand in your way. New Cool Cookware and Bakeware is available on Wayfair and at select specialty retailers and cooking schools. Through the month of October, enjoy a special promo when you visit newku.com and enter promo code KITCHEN at checkout for 35% savings off their stockpots. That's N-U-C-U.com, promo code KITCHEN. For me, the decision to go to culinary school was life-changing. It put me on track to achieve dreams I didn't even know I had. Like, for example, hosting a podcast about the culinary industry. The Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts is in the business of dream-making. Their programs prepare students for a variety of roles in the food world in the most achievable way. They've got campuses in Boulder and Austin, plus online programs that include industry externships. Check out escoffier.edu to learn more. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. I want to know, because every time we hit that pivotal moment in life, it is not without its steady drag, right? You get a little drug, and I want to know what that moment was like exactly. Because I know it wasn't just like, I decided, we decided, they decided, and then we all moved on. Tell me what those moments were looking like when Black Palette was popping off, because it did pop off fast. From the time you and I met at the table, within months, weeks even, New York Times came all of these um, really great mentions and accolades, but you were transitioning, you know, from that corporate life. And what was that like? How did you feel? How were you made to feel for being successful on your own? And did you have any feelings as it relates to being a person of color or how you identify gender queer? You know, like tell me about any of the challenges that you had in between there. The wall slide. Yeah, I was working at a company that mission was to essentially empower and develop social emotional skills in professional women and also professional women who were mentoring girls. And so first and foremost, I was the only person who identified as a non gender nonconforming person, a non-binary person who identified with an experience of growing up as girl and woman, but didn't, you know, fit in there wholly. And I think that by the time I started Black Palette, that wasn't always so much of an issue. I think my position in that company and my background in social justice and community organizing allowed me to get promoted into a role where I was responsible essentially for like doing the inclusion and belonging work. And I don't think I realized at the time that it was tokenizing, but I definitely recognize now that it was. And Mm -hmm my role at the company while I was starting Black Palette was in a training position. And so I was traveling around the world and I was training other adults who are working in this company. And it was interesting because part of the mission and the work was like to celebrate each other's success. And it was fascinating to witness that it was only the women of color in the company who celebrated my success and who actually wanted to acknowledge that I was doing something independently. And it was an interesting thing where Prior to me starting my own company, the white women specifically would always acknowledge when they recognize somebody that they 
felt like had clout, who they thought I might know, who they saw somewhere. They'd be like, oh, I saw so-and-so. Did you see on Instagram doing this? Like, did you know that? Like they would always like try to align and celebrate other people's success who they thought I could connect them to because we were an event-based organization and we were raising millions of dollars all the time for missions and things like that. But the moment that they noticed that I was having success outside of them, folks kind of started to ignore me. It was an interesting thing. And you start to notice that the only reason why they even know that you're getting the success that you're getting is because the women of color are talking about it because they're like happy for you. I think it's a that moment, that wall slide moment is really was really when I was having my interview with the New York Times because I was actually back in Boston. So I had went back to Boston for a work trip and, you know, traveling for work is already stressful sometimes because you're just wanting to be at home and in your bed. And I got a phone call from the Times probably hours after I had a really uncomfortable experience with a white woman at the organization where I felt like really embarrassed and kind of berated. And I was just really like, I don't know, I can't do this anymore. And what was that like? That was a moment where I had a knew like that was going to be my exit plan. You know, being at that organization and being at that company for six years, I had been consistently vocal about things when issues like that came up. But it also depends on who's in certain positions at the time to manage those things that essentially end up resulting in how I would feel in the moment. I would have in previous situations, somebody be like, wow, that's appalling. We're going to do something about it. Or like, what would you like us to do about it? And at that time, whoever was in that position just wasn't that kind of person. And so it was a wake up call for me because I was in a position where I was fairly comfortable, where I didn't have to show up to an office every day. I didn't have to like deal with like daily microaggressions of like being around people who were like doing these things. But a lot of my colleagues of color around the country did have to deal with those things. And so while I had had that one incident, people were having many every single day. And I was actually having to like pretend I was training people and like having meetings where people were really like, what do I do? How do I deal with this? And so at the time I felt stressed about it, but I think for me it was more like, okay, cool. Like you're already building your exit strategy. This is just confirmation. And then the call came with the New York Times and I was like, yeah, this is definitely confirmation you know what you want to do. You just know it. It was the universe reminds us. I always say that when things are not going that way, I call it the universal push. It's when you might be resisting, maybe unconsciously. Mm -hmm. The universe will make things so uncomfortable for you that you will have no choice but to move in the direction of what you're being pushed. I've experienced it a lot of times, you know, and it quite serendipitous but yeah these signs from the universe they mean a lot so okay new york times you're in boston you're talking to the times you just had this insanely berating experience did you spill it did you spill the tea like did you let them have it in the new york Times? (laughs) no absolutely not i think if anything they asked me what my inspiration was and it allowed me to definitely remind myself that like of what i used to remind my students of my clients of the people who I trained of all the time, which is that 
you are worthy, period. It's not somebody else who is in charge of dictating that for you. And you might be in these situations professionally where sometimes we feel like our self-worth is in the hands of people who are employing us. But quite frankly, you know, I was born by myself. I'm going to die by myself. And so I'm not going to let anybody essentially dictate my livelihood based on their inability to treat me as a human being, you know, it's only a reflection of themselves. And so I just felt like I used the New York Times opportunity to celebrate where I come from, to even honor the Black women who have done this kind of work prior to us, who have been kind of seen as frivolous. You know, I acknowledge Alayla Walker, um, Madam C.J. Walker's daughter, as an inspiration. I think after I had gone to college and I had learned a little bit more about her, she reminded me of my family growing up, having these dinner parties, having, you know, these spaces where so many different kinds of folks were there, so many different kind of Black people were there specifically. And, you know, as a queer person, I grew up in a household that was queer friendly. And I think that it's too bad that too often when folks of color pass away or are taken from us, we don't honor the spaces that they held until then. You know, I think sometimes we see the things that they were doing in life as frivolous, right? Something like a party, you know, Layla Walker was seen as like a party girl and just wasting her mother's money and nobody really took her seriously. And people are now and she's gone. I mean, because Black joy is like, I feel like sometimes it's like a new discovery, you know, as if we did not have the the audacity of us to be experiencing joy, you know, absolutely amongst all the things, you know, but it really is not new. It is something that we've always found ways to do. And Alelia Walker is a perfect example of making a decision to create Black joy in a midst of a time like the Harlem Renaissance, you know, where people could only write their books if they had benefactors to support them. And they even had to consider them in everything that they wrote. So she created spaces for us. And I do think that's important. And I'm grateful that you have taken up following that tradition. It is very important. And I I respect it and I honor it. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're holding that space for us. That's dope. Thank you. That is really dope. You did also talk about coming from a queer friendly family. Usually if you come from a black queer friendly family, almost any other thing that could fall under a unique umbrella is also accepted. And I know that you have mentioned that you have battled eating disorders growing up. And that also is something very taboo in terms of conversation in the Black community in general. Was that something that your mom, you got to deal with with your mom or other family members? How did you navigate that space? Because when we're going through things, we can we have a tendency to isolate, right? Even if we know we, we're with a group of people who will accept us no matter what. Can you tell me what that experience was like and how you navigated that space? Yeah, sure. So my mom's brother is gay and I've known that in terms of him saying to me, like coming out and saying I'm gay. Mm-hmm. And I would say that it was a harder time for him than it was for me. And yeah. so he came out to our family and what, when I was born or before I was born, like in the eighties and he's a black gay man and black gay man specifically, although he was born in Brooklyn, he was raised in Haiti. My grandparents sent him back as soon as he was like two or three. And so 
that's not something in the 80s that my family was responding to with him in the same way that they were responding to me coming out. So Mm -hmm. two completely different experiences. So me growing up was always kind of recognizing that although he was out and I was open with just being myself, that there was some tension with his experience. I could always tell, like, although he was out and open, that in terms of the family, there were things that maybe weren't so comfortable at some point with people. You know, you could kind of just tell that there have been things that people moved on and grew from. And I knew that more so when I actually came out and like said I'm gay. And my aunt made some reference or something to like how my mom responded and was like, oh, well, like, this isn't like she wasn't always like this or something like that. And I was like, okay, well, yeah, I mean, she might have not always been responsive to like somebody saying that they're gay in the way she is today, but also it was 1986. So like now it's not and people grow. Yes. But the eating disorder isn't something that was discussed in my family. I don't think that there are ways of communicating something like that in my experience, because although I do know where I'm from in the way that I know where my parents are from, I know the countries that they're from, and I know the lineage and the history behind those two countries. I was born in the the United States. I'm American. My parents are not American, and they don't have an experience of being a Black American in this country, born and raised. And so they definitely don't they're not talking about eating disorders and and who was talking about that growing up was white girls. And so I spent a lot of time moving through that definitely by cooking because I started to have a lot of control over my food and kind of engaging hands-on with my food helped me move through a lot of eating disorder habits that I had that just didn't suit me because it's not something that goes away. I definitely still struggle with things today, but it's definitely not something that people are having conversations about in Haitian culture. Yeah. Or black culture. Yeah. It's something that in my family, people were talking about by holding my arm and being like, oh, you're so skinny. Mm. Or like my mom starting to cook a little bit more. You would notice when she, I think my mom, you would notice she would be cooking when she noticed like I wasn't eating. Mm -hmm. She, instead of being like, oh, let's just go get something out to eat or here's some food, you'll get something. I, I would notice things like that. And I had an eating disorder from a very young age. So my mom, you know, it was kind of embarrassing, but my mom spoon fed me food. That's not embarrassing at all. When I was like seven or eight, you know, I think it was like making sure, you know, it's like my kid is growing thin. I don't know what's going on maybe, or she's not eating, but I'm going to make sure you eat. So I would be like watching TV and then I would like get up and go walk over to my mom and she would be spoon feeding me. Yeah. Because that's what a mom would do. Yeah. Make sure that her baby's eating. Those weren't explicit conversations. Yeah. Did you lean into any outside resources for yourself that you would like to share with listeners? Or, you know, is it still something that you really kind of deal with individually and internally? Well, I definitely 
think that it's important if people can to access therapy. As a young person, I started reading a lot. I would say that's the first thing I started doing. I wasn't like seeing a counselor or doing anything like that. I was just trying to figure out what was going on. And so unfortunately, a lot of young adult literature around eating disorders is just a lot of white girls. Mm -hmm. And so although I would read things and feel like, okay, this is my experience to some degree, I would see it through a lens that just wasn't my own. And by the time I got to New York, my freshman year of New York, while I was in New York, my mom got breast cancer. So that essentially moved me into just seeking mental health support. Yeah. And I would say that that helped with a lot of things, including eating disorders. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, Hunter, this is a time in our conversation where we like to have our listeners send in their questions and they ask our guests to give them advice on anything that they may be encountering. A moment in the walk-in. I have a question from one of our listeners, Maria, and Maria wants to know how you went about pivoting your non-brick-and-mortar food business during COVID? And do you have advice for people who need to pivot their business? I would say that the first piece of advice would be to ask yourself, what is your end goal when you are executing your physical space? So whether or not that's a brick and mortar, or in the case of Black Palette specifically, what people know us for is our supper club. So we have a sex ed supper club called Fed, and that is an event that folks frequently come to, to connect in all types of ways, including eating. And although folks can't come to a physical supper club or can't come to a physical space and have an educational experience, I'm not just going to say that we're not going to have events anymore. I have to ask myself, well, what was the purpose of those experiences? And so Mm. if the purpose of the experiences was first for folks to get this radical sex education in the example of FED, and then if the other purpose was for people to feel like they could come together as community and have these uncomfortable conversations and eat or connect or commune around food, what are the tools that I have? to make sure that that can actually happen and that I can achieve those purposes. So I would say the second question was would be a follow-up to the first question, which is like, what are the tools that you have to help you arrive to the same goals from the first question? You know, it's like, right. how do you arrive to your purpose using the tools that you currently have, right? So if the first thing is, you know, what's the purpose of what I usually do on the ground? Then the next question would be, what are the tools that I have right now to execute that purpose? And so for a lot of people, that's the internet. And for Fed, in terms of Black Palette, we started to pivot by offering the educational components virtually. We knew that we weren't able to come together and have a supper club experience, but we knew that people were interested in this fusion around sexual education and food to some degree. So we started tapping into our educators, which are typically sex educators. And uh, we asked them to do kind of two-part experiences where, you know, maybe one part they're teaching us how to make pasta from scratch 
And then the second part of it, we're having an actual class based on like one of their expertise. But the first class, we make sure that they're not just cooking. We make sure that we connect a conversation about being confident in in the kitchen around being confident maybe in your like body image or feeling confident in the bedroom or whatever. Essentially for me, it's about asking myself, what's the end goal and arriving at that? And the third thing in terms of like pivoting would be the most important part, which is how am I going to monetize this? (laughs) I think it gives yourself a little bit more confidence to get through the first two questions in order to arrive to the third for me, at least, because when I first start thinking like, how do I monetize this before I even think about the rest of it? I usually don't arrive at an answer. Mm -hmm. And Usually my questions have been answered when I answer the first two questions because I'm like, oh, okay, so we're doing it virtually. Okay, so what needs to happen? Okay, we need to hire people who for their time and their labor. Okay, great. How much is that going to cost? Okay, how much are people willing to pay to go to a class? Okay, great. Right. It allows that part of it to be a little bit easier because now you've kind of figured out how things are going to work out. So you can see the income streams yeah. possibly. That's great advice. I'm taking it and I'm sending it. All of it. And I hope you got all of that. That was perfect. (laughs) Thank you, Hunter. Thank you so much. This was so great. If you want to learn more about Hunter's work with Black Palette, give them a follow on Instagram. Their handle is at Black Palette. That's at B-L-K-P-A-L-A-T-E. Oh, and also, Black Palette will be dropping a brand new newsletter this fall. This is so exciting. It's called Maya, and it celebrates people of color while exploring the intersections of art, food, and sexuality. Subscribe and get all that goodness in your inbox. We put a link in the show notes for you. Do it. Go. If you want a moment in the walk-in, send us your questions. You can email us at thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. You can send anything you need advice on, from the personal to the professional and everything in between. I'll only use your first name on the show for privacy. That's thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. One more quick thing. If you like The Walk-In and you want more of these real, raw, unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, El Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Han Margolis. Our producers include Caitlin Kelleher, Caroline Rickard, and Sarah Joyner. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Ivana Strawin is our intern. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Blue Shield California, Nuku, Room and Board, Escoffier, Samuel Adams, Berkshire Bank, and Valley Fig Growers. 
The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.